Hi, Summer Stagers. This is Harry, and I want to share my enormous gratitude to Bob and all of his guests for the gifts of this wonderful podcast. I can't tell you how touched I am every episode to hear your stories, your love for Summer Stage, and your kind messages for me. It is truly a gift. I want you to know that Summer Stage magic is still very much alive. We never knew that 49 years ago to fill the world with love would capture the hearts of so many, and it still does. After the shows, I like to tell a little one, someday you'll be on our stage. A couple years ago, an 11-year-old magic maker said to me, Mr. Dietzler, when I was little, you told me that someday I would be on this stage, and now I am. More than a couple moms have told me that Summer Stage saved their child's life. You've heard those stories on this podcast. We can see every year how young people are transformed by the experience of working together to share what's inside them with our audience. As one mom said last summer, this summer changed the trajectory of my daughter's life. Whether or not she becomes an actress, she came in as a stranger and left with a family. Right now, I'm reaching out to that Summer Stage family to say, we need you. If the dream of Summer Stage is to continue, our alumni needs to embrace it. These days, my primary job is to raise the funds Summer Stage needs to operate. Now that we're independent and nonprofit within the Upper Darby Arts and Education Foundation, we depend on ticket sales, registrations, and fundraising. Every year, we need to raise more than $300,000 in donations to operate Summer Stage. That's quite a challenge. Upper Darby Township provides support in the form of scholarships to its residents, and we receive some grants but we depend on individual gifts to keep us going. But I have some great news. A very generous alum has offered to match up to $125,000 in donations, and we have another alum that has committed $25,000 toward that goal. If 100 alumni pledged $1,000, their gifts would be doubled. Of course, every gift of any amount is a huge help. We can also make your donation a monthly gift. Like Bob, I'm also looking forward to the 50th season and alumni reunion next year and to see you in person. And by the way, the school district is completely renovating the theater and lobby with all new seats, carpets, and lighting. It will be ready to serve the next 50 years of summer stagers. Please help us make that next 50 years a reality by making a generous gift. Our website is udfoundation.org. Thank you so much. We all have stories to tell, and they can be heard here. Welcome to Brave and Strong and True, a podcast that engages summer stage alumni of all ages. I'm Bob Falkenstein. Jeff Glass performed in many children's theater productions in the 80s, and by the 90s, he was a leading man in main stage productions, playing Oliver Warbucks in Annie and the King of Siam in The King and I. Jeff took his Ivy League education west to Silicon Valley and worked as a programming engineer on many successful projects. He claims that a lot of his instincts are anchored in what he learned in his youth at Summer Stage. Jeff worked as a CEO for startup companies and spent a decade on the stand-up comedy circuit in New York City. In his spare time, Jeff likes to sail his sailboat create woodworking projects, and cook. 
I hope you enjoy our conversation. So come along and have some fun. I have, on the other end, uh, Jeff Glass. Now, I, I, I know who Jeff is. I don't know much about him. I know he was the generation after me. But he posts a lot of interesting stuff about his life on Facebook. So I'm glad we were able to get together tonight. So, Jeff, how are you? Great to be here. I'm super happy. Hi from Los Angeles. All right. So, yeah, we are three hours away. So I'm just going to start with my my first question. Jeff had admitted that he hasn't heard any of these yet. So he, like most people, he hasn't had the opportunity to prepare his answers. Oh, boy. So let's see how this goes. So, Jeff, how did you first find out about Summer Stage? Uh, you know, I, I couldn't tell you how I found out about it. It may have been my sister, uh, but it was, you know, I think it was 81. It was either 81 or 82. And, uh, you know, we just found that there was this summer program. I had done plays at my grade school. I went to Holy Child down the street from Upper Darby High, and I lived even closer, like three blocks away. And uh, so we just, you know, somehow it became news to us or to my parents or someone was like, oh, there's this summer program. And so we went and did, I think the first play I did was the uh, Pied Piper of Hamlin with uh, Gary, Gary Lennon. All right. And uh, Nick Hunchak. Nick Hunchak. Yes. Nick Hunchak. Yeah, was cast. Debbie Shipley, Nick Hunchak, uh, who also did Mike Molyneux, who was my best friend and uh, Steve Smith met Steve Smith on that. Um, uh, yeah. I'm lots of other people. I'm, you know, forgetting their names, but the, you know, that was my first, that was the entree, and then there was just no, you know, there was no turning back. Of course, that was my my summer. It was amazing. Yeah. Well, my last interview was with Nick and Chrissy, and they, they spoke about the Pied Piper. So I know that was in 1983. 83, okay. So that's probably my second year. I think the first, uh, well, I don't know. My brother was in that with me, so I think that must have been my first year. Was that 83, really? 83, yeah. Huh. Who was your brother? Joe Joseph Glass. He passed away around ten years oh, ago. But um Okay. He's my older brother. There's I have a brother and a sister, and my sister and I were both in the theater. My brother wasn't really, but he was just looking for something to do that summer. So okay. Oh, that's right. We did the yeah, the Pied Piper of Hamlet. So that was eighty three. Maybe okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So I, maybe that was Harry sent me a list because I've made so many mistakes. <laughs> So he sent me like a timetable. Mm. So you and Jennifer came at the same time? Yes. Same summer. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. She, and I'm so, sure you will remember, you get her in an interview. She's down in Florida now. Um, and uh, if you get her in an interview, she'll remember every date, every place, every person, because that's, you know, how her brain works. She's, you know. I, well, maybe you one. can give her a nudge for me. I'm not, I'm not sure if she would, she probably wouldn't remember me if I just approached her out of the blue. She remembers everybody. I promise you. Like, oh. I'll, I'll, but I'll give her a nudge. I'll give you a nudge. She's, okay. uh, she's amazing that way. All right. So, uh, 82, if you want to look, if, if you thought, 83 was her second year. 82 Children's Theater was uh, Snow White, Pinocchio, Peter and the Wolf, Jungle Book, Wizard of Oz, Fairy Tale Fantasy, Jack and the Beanstalk, 
Maybe my sister did, did it in 82 when I only came in 83. That's entirely possible because I'm, I'm pretty sure she did Sleeping Beauty. So maybe she did the summer before and that's entirely possible. Because I do remember I went to camp one summer and maybe Summer mm-hmm. State was the, was the summer after Camp Brisson. So, sorry. This, this is a, your poorly prepared interview. Definitely, I was there what was, in three. What was the camp you went to? Camp Brisson. It was on the Elk River the, on the north end of the Chesapeake Bay. And so, oh, I was, okay. I was there like, you know, five weeks out of the previous summer. So, that might have been 82. And then, summer stage might have been 83. Okay. Well, uh, if Jen did Sleeping Beauty, that was 1981. Okay, what was 82 again? Snow White, Pinocchio. Oh, so yeah, she Wolf. might have done Snow White, but maybe she did. I don't remember. I don't remember. Um, I'll just have to ask you'll her. You'll have to ask her. I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> I, what I remember right. first was uh, um, the Pied Piper, the, because it was like a weird musical arrangement you know it was like this you know we are the rats the rats of hamlin living the life of (laughs) riley i mean i just remember it like it's yesterday because it was such a fun thing you know um and of course i what i remember about those days was of course like we did everything we were building sets we were oh yeah it was just you know you just spent the whole day there which Mm -hmm. is which is what made it so amazing Exactly. So, so my next question is, who was your first friend? Now, you already mentioned somebody, Mike. Yeah, Mike Molino. I mean, uh, uh, well, it's it's interesting that time in my life. And so seventh, you know, seventh grade, going into eighth grade. Um, uh, Michael McCourt, who was a couple of years older than I was, he might have been the one who made me aware of Summer Stage. He might have been the one who first brought me over there. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure it was. And uh, he was this, I don't know if you've interviewed him, but he was this amazingly talented piano player, just so funny, you know, just such an, I mean, you know, he was such a, he was such a, a, a figure there. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I think of him and Chris Sapienza as being like, you know, these piano gods, you know, but Mike was in this, he was sort of in a level all his own. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, probably Steve Smith was maybe the first person I met, but there were so many you know, you could probably rattle off the names of the cast of Pied Piper. And I'd be like, yes, 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 yes. And, uh-huh. um, you know, so I'm not, I'm not the person to say, but Steve Smith, definitely. And we, he and I have stayed in touch and, you know, I mean, we're Facebook friends more than anything, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Well, I'm also Facebook friends with Steve. Yeah. Cause I, I found out, uh, my, my daughter came pretty close to going to Albright where, uh, Steve's wife is a professor. Oh, really? Yeah. So I, and I know Steve looks exactly the same as he did in 1983. Like, yes, I look like his great uncle, and he looks like he's <laughs> right into class. I'm like, this is ridiculous that you look exactly yeah. the same. You know? Yeah. Mike Molino looks like he was 40 when he was 12. So you know, he looks he's aging better than I am. But he, you know. You have to amortize it over the fact that he looked like he was selling insurance when he was in sixth grade. So, <laughs> but what were some of your favorite shows? Now, I know you went on to become a leading man of well, I, uh, the nighttime shows. I, main stage. I was shows. a I was a late stage. You know, I did the, some some night shows, but not not the level of talent that breezed through there. Like you know, it, I, 
it's really hard to pick a favorite show. Obviously, everything I was in was super fun. Um, I, you know, highlights were um, uh, the summer, the morning production of Scrooge, where, you know, the musical version of Christmas Carol. I thought that was, Mm -hmm. first off, was just so great. Secondly, um, Colleen Corbett played Scrooge. And she was, I mean, it was, you know, years later, I'd be in a play with Frances McDormand. And she blew me away the way Colleen Corbett blew away, I don't know, 13, 12-year-old Jeff. Like, you know, she was just such a force. She was so great. And she was just so gracious, right? And Mm -hmm. I think the 50th, the 40th reunion, you know, I saw her for the first time in a decade or so. And we just laughed. She and Gary and I just sat around and laughed and laughed. And of course, (laughs) there's a part of my brain that still thinks I get to hang with the college kids. I get to hang with the high school kids, you know, because I'm... yeah. Because they're still, you know, I mean, now we're all just old people. But, um, yeah, I would say that one was a big favorite. I mean, the, you know, the night shows are a totally different thing. I, I, You know, for me, the day shows were just pure, unadulterated joy, like entire summers of hanging with people. So it's hard to pick one out. But, you know, um, certainly Pied Piper was really fun. Um I do remember I wasn't in it, but Pale Pink Dragon. What was funny about that was they could never get the damn dragon to work. And so there would be these, you know, so that was sort of exciting because, you know, we'd, uh, um, we'd run around and, and, you know, like watch, just watch the awkwardness. I think that was the first time I, you know, like uh, later I did comedy and, you know, watching people squirm on stage is like a great a joy of all comedians. But like, I think that was the first time I experienced that. And then after that, I would say uh, uh, The King and I was a, was really, that was like the, the this, a really nice summer because, uh, you know, I was, I think 20 or 21. So I was like right at the end and uh, my mother had passed away. And so it was like, you know, it was a tough time in my life. Mm-hmm. To come back to Upper Darby and like do summer stage and to get to hang out with, you know, all the all the adults in it then, right? Like, because now I'm like, okay, I'm as old as you can be, being there, and that's and that's a that's a very fun memory. In fact, our uh, Ryan, um, before he passed away, we were we were going back and forth, and he sent me a film he had made about that, and you know, I hadn't seen it ever, and so you know. It was a real gift. I don't know. He passed away, what, two years ago? It was, but it was a real gift for, he sent it to me and here I am mm-hmm. like watching this interview he did with me when I was 21 and, uh, you know, super nice to have, you know? Um, yeah. so yeah. maybe that has had a soft spot in my heart because of that, but also, you know, but also like, uh, just all those performers, like just being around those before I, the other thing I remember was, uh, Annie, which I, I was, in there i was in both productions right i was in a later production as daddy warbucks but i was in the earlier production with um i'm trying to remember her name uh who went on to uh, uh be on um uh, beyond uh, uh everybody's lovers raymond and then marry the producer oh monica monica yeah monica so and that was the second time i think i was like wow like you know i just she was other level right i mean in the same way that seeing someone like um um you know ann pinto sing um or chrissy fralick sing like you know there's just like these amazing 
talents that just happen in mm-hmm. the neighborhood. And that's the, there's, I, those are the, th- <clears throat> I'd say those are the moments that really stick with me. Like the moments where I'm like, wow, this person is just otherworldly talented. And then it was mm-hmm. all the fun, you know, just like it was a, I was a nerdy kid and maybe a creative <laughs> kid and, you know, probably couldn't really, didn't really know my place in the world. And I felt absolutely at home there, which was, mm-hmm. you know, really important at that age. <coughs> Part of it. Well, your first Annie, I was FDR. I remember. Yeah, but I, I don't remember. think I knew you because I was like, in my twenties and you would have been in your twenties and I was 14 and you know, (laughs) my big, and that was Terry Nolan's Annie. And the, and my big claim to fame there was like, uh, Julie, uh, Dylan and I, um, Julie Maines actually is her name now, but I can't remember. I think it was her name. Her name was Julie Dylan at the time, but Julie and I made this quilt, that giant quilt for the, uh, uh, for the orphanage. And we spent Mm -hmm. all summer just sewing this quilt, just slave labor, sewing the quilt. (laughs) I remember, you know, Terry coming in once and going, oh, yeah, that's nice, you know. <laughs> and I was like, I've been here, like, my all my hands were bleeding. And, you know, and I was like, boy, I hate this guy. <laughs> um, but I totally remember your performance in that show. Like, I mean, again, all of you guys were just, you know, and I think Monica was also in Guys and Dolls, right? Was she? Yes, yeah. she was yeah. Adelaide. She was Adelaide. And so I remember those really, she was the first, I think, well, well, uh, uh, t- to be fair, it was uh, um, Scrooge. Uh, you know, that performance was the first one I was like, wow. But I think Monica was the first time I thought, wow, I hope she, you know, she's a professional. You know, when you're that age and you're in those, the nighttime theaters, you're thinking everyone here is going to go on to Broadway. And she was one yeah. I really thought would, you know. So it was yeah, very She might have been 22 when she did that. Yeah. 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 She was, you know, she was a force. Um, mm hmm. And I was, re- and it was very fun because, of course, I'm now. I, I like to cook, and I watch her husband's show, and he oh, did yeah. the next episode where he goes to to Philly, and there she is. And yeah, I, you know, I said, Amy's like, I, Amy, my girl, my partner came home, and she sees me in front of the TV. She's like, we, "What are you in? You're just so enjoying." I'm like, "It's somebody <laughs> feed Phil, and it's in Philly, and his wife Monica's on it, and I'm like, like, it's just like everything I love all wrapped together, you know." So yeah. Well, I knew you were in King and I, because a couple months ago I was promoting the podcast and I made a meme where I found uh, from a later professional King and I, you know, the King and Anna are just getting ready to step into the walls. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Oh, okay. And I put, shall we podcast? Yes. And I think it was Ed Robbins then posted the picture, the same picture of, of you. Yes. Yes. So who was your Anna? I'm trying to remember her name. She was great. She was very, uh, um, she was, you know, super gracious and really kind. And, um, but boy, I, boy, I do not remember her name, um, okay. which I, I'm embarrassed to say, but it, in, you know, in my defense, it's been 30 years. Uh, um, yeah, that was a really nice experience. I mean, you know, what's funny about that summer was, was it King and I or that summer? Yeah, I think that was King and I, but the yeah, I for uh, I I didn't shave my head for uh for I did shave my head for King and I. I didn't do it for Daddy Warbucks, I don't think. And okay. uh but the summer I did King and I, I shaved my head and then I was in a bike accident. Oh. And uh, I was planning to bike it through France and I was literally riding from Center City where I was taking class at Penn to uh pick up my helmet 
No joke. (laughs) And also just like I'm riding my bike on Walnut Street through like West Philly, which, you know, I look back now, I'm like, where were my parents? Why was this allowed to happen? (laughs) You know, and I and I got hit, you know, someone just hit me and I like had and my ear was basically off and I had these stitches in my forehead. And uh, I remember calling up. um, uh, It was who who directed that it was. um, um, you just mentioned his name. Sorry, I'm terrible. Ed. Ed. Yeah, Ed. I called up Ed and I'm like, hey, Ed. And I'm looking in the mirror. I'm like, um, <laughs> I can't do the photo shoot today, but I'll be able to do it tomorrow. But you're only going to have to shoot this side of the face because my other side, yeah. really, the ear was off and everything. Um, anyway, sorry. Well, once you start listening to the previous episodes, I had a similar bike accident. Oh, really? On the on the eve of a show, but I told the story twice already and I swore I would not tell it again. I promise so I will have, listen to it. You're going to have to go back and listen. Okay. I'll it. message you when I, when I've listened to it. Sounds fair. All righty. So yeah, my, one of my questions was going to be, you know, you played daddy Warbucks, you played uh, the King of Siam, <laughs> you know, and I, iconically they're bald men. Right. So, uh, well, I'm glad you got around the shave in your hat. How did they pull off the baldness of Daddy Warbucks? I think they did a bald clap. I don't. I honestly, I don't remember. Or, or Ed decided I didn't need it. I think I maybe I shaved my head again. I don't think I did because um, I remember it so clearly, and I remember in the promos for Daddy Warbucks, I I, I have a full head of hair. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe they just said, "No, nah, we're not going." You know, maybe Ed's like, "Hey, we don't have to do that." You know, it's tradition. Who cares, right? So I don't remember. You have to. I'm sure Ed Ed would remember. Um, yeah. How did they handle Sandy the dog? They just had a dog. You know, that was you know, it was a dog. It wasn't a particularly well behaved dog. It was you know, I still remember her like, "Come here, boy. Come here, boy. Come here, boy." And you know, he like finally comes over. You know. Um, but uh, I, what I do remember about my Annie was, you know, she was young and I was 21 and she was embarrassed to be around me. Like she didn't like I was like I was just a weird adult. And so, like, I don't remember her name, not because I had any bad feelings for her, because I sort of like wanted to respect her. You know, she really didn't want to have anything to do with me at all. What mm-hmm. during the production? I remember, that. and again, you know, like none of that. I don't say that, like, boy, she was a terrible person. She was, a, she was like eleven, you know, right? So probably, I'm this weird older guy who's hanging probably out. Probably creeped out. She had a dance with exactly. It's <laughs> just weird, right? Exactly, right? Whatever, whatever. In the psychology of of you know of young performer that age, but I remember just trying to keep give her respectful distance, you know, and like yeah, let her know well, that you know I I wasn't. Uh, you know, like I'm, we're just there to perform. It's all good, you know. Right. I play. I was lucky to play Daddy Warbucks at at a much older age, and they had double cast the Annies, so one was very short and one was very tall, <laughs> and it totally threw me off. When you do that, something was <coughs> missing, and then you do the little the little dance because. I mean, there's a difference when, yeah, when one yeah, guy yeah, like I can five ten and the other's like four foot eight. I mean, it was it was crazy, but I did shave my head for that. And uh, you know, I'm a high school teacher, so I had fun. I shaved it uh, halfway, so you couldn't tell it was shaved with a baseball cap on. Oh, right. So, yeah. and then I took it off, and then the one year I just shaved it down the middle. 
So I kind of look like the mayor of Whoville in, in Ron Howard's Grinch movie. So I would shave it off in like stages. And then I I, I most recently shaved it to play Fester in Adam's family. I love it. I saw that picture and, of that on Facebook, I think. Okay. All right. So I, I, I'm not going to outrule doing it again. I mean – it it's fun except when it rains. It's kind of funky in the rain. I the, yeah. The- I mean, I shaved my head off through COVID. <laughs> I, I've just only started oh, okay. having a haircut again. So, um, so I like. I actually think it's something every young man should go through because because I had my sh- head shaved and I had like all these scars. I basically looked like a bad. And I always wear black t shirts. I've worn black t shirts you know my whole life. So I looked like a skinhead, you know, I just looked like a scary kid. And then, but then when I would be like quiet and somewhat, cause I was always a little bit, you know, um, well, thank you very much. You know, my parents taught me, were very specific about my, my politeness. And so people would just strike up conversations with me cause they were trying to figure out what's going on with the polite, quiet skinhead who seems to, you know, <laughs> know a couple polysyllabic words. And so I remember like being at university of Pennsylvania and going to like the food court And like, you know, women behind the counter would just strike up conversations with me. And I'm like, what is happening? This doesn't happen to me when I have hair. Um, And I don't think it was because, you know, they liked skinheads or anything. It was just because my look and my demeanor were so incongruous with each other. You know, I was a real that was an eye opener for me because it's like, oh, when people don't see what they expect, it, 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 uh, you know, it piques their interest. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah. So I, you piqued my interest when you talked about the black t-shirt. Uh, <laughs> when you did stand up, did you wear the black t-shirt? Lots of times, yeah. I mean, you know, it's just for me. It what's very funny is that I work in software now, and this is like the uniform, right? Like I have a, <laughs> I have a little backyard, and I throw uh, parties here like once or twice a year. And when the Tinder team comes, my my partner turned to me and she was like. I, I thought you were all wearing Tinder t-shirts and then I just realized you're all just wearing black t-shirts. So I, for me, it's just, I like not thinking about, you know, it's kind of that Einstein thing about like, I don't want to waste cycles thinking about what to wear. Right. So I have lots of black shirts that I like when they get a stain on them, they go from the can be worn in public drawer to the, these are the weekend project shirts. This is a right. weekend project shirt. If I was a more responsible guy, I would have changed before coming on here. Not that anyone could see any difference in a, you know, in a window like this, but like, it is just the difference for me between, okay, I can go work on the wood shop and uh, let's go out to dinner with some friends. Mm-hmm. So did Louis CK copy you? <laughs> well, all fat men wear black t-shirt. Let's just be honest. Uh, I think Louis CK and I both copied whoever, you know, ordered, ordered a lot of the second plate of fried chicken is, is the, yeah, yeah, is the root yeah. cause of that, you know? Yeah, my my daughter is into musical theater, which just makes me so proud. That's great. And she, we were watching; they did like a live Grease, and yeah. one of her favorite performers is Aaron Tivet, and he played Danny Zuko, and he's there in his black t shirt. So I made a meme where I had him on one side, and I had how I think I look in black t shirts, and then I had Louis C.K. and I'm like, what I really look like when I wear black t shirts. Oh. Right. I, I love that. I, I did used to, when I was doing comedy, I used to do a joke about shaving your head and I would be like, yeah, 
when you used to see a white guy with shaved head, you think that guy's a badass. And then like we always do, we always do it. And now you see a white guy with a shaved head and you think he's aging or he's cancer, you know, like it's one of those things. (laughs) And uh, so I love that. Like, you know, the look that starts as something and then morphs into something else. Like for Mm -hmm. me, it's more habit than anything. And the fact that, um, you know, I like black. I lived in New York too for 17 years. So like wearing black comes very naturally. Um, there was a vacation I took with my family one summer, one winter we were, you know, in Italy and my brother just mercilessly mocked me because I had brought seven black, uh, <laughs> cashmere sweaters, seven black cashmere sweaters. And he's like, you couldn't have brought three and worn them twice. And I'm like, yeah, it's like, it's true. It's like completely true. It's just like, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm an idiot with a limited repertoire. Yeah. All right. I want to talk about some of this stuff later, but we got to get back to the sure. summer stage. Or we're going to lose listeners. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry, everybody. I don't know. No, no, my no. This, this is fascinating. Uh, but what's one of your best moments on stage? You know, I mean, I'm I'm a performer of limited abilities. And, uh, you know, like I remember in both Annie and in, uh, uh, in um, King and I, you know, just running up against the fact I don't have a very good voice. Right. So like to be against, you know, these leading ladies who had been both cases had amazing voices and their solos were fantastic. And I'm just trying to hit the note, you know, I'm just trying to not embarrass myself. Um, I would say uh, performance wise, probably like the favorite moment was um, I'm trying to the, I think it was in the Christmas Carol. Um, there's a there's a one of the day shows where there was a song called Scumps, you know, and it's just like we're in a bar. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, scumps, scumps up toast to the night. Da, 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 you know, and uh, we would come out and set up, and there, Cara Bridgens, who just recently got married to Jim Rankin. Uh, yes. Tara Bridgens was playing like a fairy with two other women and they're like doing a scene and we come out and set up and, you know, we're coming out and setting up on an open stage and the lighting <laughs> is somewhat, you know, uh, you know, loose. And so, and we were all supposed to come out and freeze and I would come out and I had a big mug and I, and I, and I was right on the edge of the thing, but I came out and I froze like that. And <laughs> The kids would start laughing because, you know, and I'm still, and I'm embarrassed to say that is my happiest moment on summer stage, like, <laughs> like by a long shot, just because, and it, and that speaks to like who I am and what, like I, cause I'm like, I said, I, when I mentioned those women who blew me away on stage and I'm like, and I could sit there and watch them and it's just like, I love it so much. Um, but it also like, I don't, I don't like watch my own performances and go, yup, I'm in that category. I was for me, I was a dilettante. Um, but I love making people laugh. And probably that was a big seminal moment for me to realize that like, because Kara, I remember was pretty pissed at me, you know, because like, it's not my scene, it's her scene, you know, right. why am I spilling? Right. But I, what I learned about myself was I'll always go for the laugh, even if it's not in my best interest. So mm-hmm. honest answer. All right. So, how have you witnessed the summer stage magic? Hello, everyone. 
Upper Darby Summer Stage is now in its 49th season of magic. Please visit their website, www.udsummerstage.org, for information about performances and ticket sales. If you are able to make a donation, please consider it. Summer Stage is now a not-for-profit organization and relies on contributions from good folks like you. Tell them Bob sent you. Well, you know, for me, it's in two things. It's the friendships that have lasted for 40 years, you know, Um, and... And the memories that I have with those friends, uh, Adria Kuhn is someone I met uh, in Summer Stage. And when I bought this house, like in, in the middle of COVID, and, you know, she came over when people were all wearing masks and we had to sit ba- outside and we went for a long walk in Los Angeles. And, you know, here we all both are in our late 40s, early 50s, you know, haven't seen each other in years. And we talk for five minutes and then we're right back at summer stage and we're back at all those mm-hmm. people, all those friendships. So for me, you know, the magic was always, it, it was such a creatively open place and such a, like I, so just the, the, the when I think about summer stage, I think as much about wandering around in the hallways as I do about the performances um, being backstage and watching people do stuff. And so like, for me, the fact that we're still talking about it, that like, when you asked me to do this, I was like very excited. That's what the magic is. The magic is that, um, you know, I, when I was a young kid, Christmas was like that for me. And at some point that just becomes something you leave behind, you know, like it's something Christmas is for young people. And you like Mm -hmm. when you spend a Christmas and there aren't children in the room, you're always a little sad because that's what the, but the magic for me of summer stage is when I get together with those friends and we're well into middle age now, we can still have that feeling together. Yeah. And, you know, sitting with Adria and her husband in a restaurant, you know, in a fancy restaurant, like where I go all the time here, but now I'm just in Adria, we might as well have been at Kirk's Landing. After the show, <laughs> right, I can go right back to that, and that is, you know, I can't do that with with everything, you know. Yeah, I forgot it was called Kirk's Landing. I still think Casey's it was Kirk's Landing. I know so it was only Kirk's Landing yeah. for like one summer, right? And it's yeah. still Casey's. I still can't believe that Casey's stick because I went back a year or two ago, and I'm like, it's not that good. How has it lasted thirty years? <laughs> you know, but it's but like, and, and in my mind, it's Kirk's Landing because boy, I remember when they built it. I remember when it opened. It was very exciting. Yeah. Who were some of your mentors? Uh, Gary Lennon was, uh, you know, certainly the first time I saw someone. What, what, when I, I had done a play in uh, the my my grade school, and that director was really great, <clears throat> but he was very unapproachable. And Gary was like this. Uh, I, again, I think it was the first time I saw someone whose plan was to be do this professionally. Mm-hmm. And the way he dealt with us and, you know, like we were kids and he was, you know, we were like 12, 11 and he's like 17, 18, but I still remember. And he just was at my house I don't oh, know, wow. a year ago and we were like hanging out and just laughing and sitting in the hot tub and, you know, me and his partner and laughing and joking. And, and I, the, my favorite story about that play is when 
he just comes out and he goes, guys, uh, the play it, uh, sucks. It just sucks. Oh. And, you know, and I just, I just loved that this adult was just, you know, there was something about the respect with which he just told me this is bad work. And probably I took that so to heart that professionally I've, you know, it took me maybe 15 years to soften my edge. Um, because someone said to me once, like when I had a company a couple of years back, they were like, what does Cogito stand for? I'm like, we hate bad work. And he goes, what about we love good work? And <laughs> you can probably track that back to like, I appreciate that Gary was just straight up with us. Like, uh-huh. this is bad. Like, don't be bad, be good. Good's over here. Go over to over here. And I'm, I'm, and so that, you know, and again, when I went back for the 40th, I was so excited to be able to make Gary laugh yeah. because in my mind's eye, he is the gold standard of someone who is going to be a creative. And of course, not surprisingly, that's what he does. He's, you know, in right. design profession, professional theater, you know. Well, I interview him. So you might want to start. I'll listen to it. I'll listen to it. (laughs) I'm sure he talks for at least an hour about me. I know I'm a very seminal. Oh yeah. yeah, I, I I cut that out. (laughs) Smart. What would you like to say to Harry? Uh, Thank you. Obviously. Um, You know, I, I, I mean, he's this face of summer stage. Everyone has probably said anything I could think of, but I guess if I was to, search for something that, you know, um, maybe I can give him that, that, you know, he doesn't hear from everybody else. It would be, you might be surprised at how often I use the things that you gave me those summers, you know, and whether are there memories that I like that, that support me in a time of difficulty or, you know, when I'm dealing with, uh, you know, I work in software engineering, and so people think, "Oh, yeah, well, Jeff thought about theater, and then he." But I always loved computers and theater; that was always my thing. I always loved both. I was always nerdy in those two ways. And computer programmers, which is who I manage day to day, are very much like performers in that they're passionate, they're irrational, they have great instincts, they have bad instincts, and guiding them to creative success is really fun and you know seeking out that fun in the pursuit of creating things i wouldn't say the first time i saw it was summer stage because like i said i had done a couple plays in uh grade school and i was lucky enough to have this uh director frank jackson who was really something of a perfectionist but it was the first time I did it with my peers and we all enjoyed it. And we were like, it was ours as opposed to like, we're in a grade school production and it's the director's vision. And we're just doing what he tells us to do here. It was like, Gary felt like someone I could be one day. Gary felt like someone I could grow into. And here he was like pursuing a creative life. And that has always appealed to me ever since. So, and I think that, you know, that's a gift that, um, Harry gave me, and I think a lot of other people, and I think folks who don't end up, you know, the Monica Harans and the Tina Fey's of the group who are like, go on to be performers. You're like, oh yeah, well, they, they're still using it. But, you know, for those of us who, for whom the creativity is a little more embedded, it's still, for me at least, it's still very present. And certainly to everyone I talk to who is in my cohort, it's, the, it's there for them as well. Mm-hmm.
That's a wonderful answer. Thank you, Jeff. What would you like to say to current summer stagers? Um, well, you know, I always think of this something that someone said to me when I was in my 30s that really resonated. It's like, you know, when you're young, the great thing you when you meet interesting people, you think that that'll just happen forever. And, you know, when you make those special friendships, just cherish them, just nurture them, put the effort into them. I think I learned that later in life. Um, it's just not something my parents instilled in me. And I think, uh, you know, probably some of those friendships I missed a decade or two um, that I could have had if I just put the time and effort in. And so, like, you know, you get so much for free when you're all there together doing the plays. But then put in the time, you know, outside and nurture it after it's gone, because those people can be there in your life for 40, 50 years. And um, and they are the they are very precious. Like, you know, it's like I my partner sees the look on my face when people from summer stage are here in our house. You know, yeah. and so like just water that you know garden it would be my advice and also just enjoy it and don't be afraid to do something i mean i we did a they did a straight play one winter it was 87 i think maybe yes i think it was 87 it was um um rehearsal for murder and uh summer of 87 i believe and um you are correct that's what I thought. This is my, my junior year of high school. And I did that. And I did it with my girlfriend at the time. And we broke up during it. And then my mother got sick. And it was, t- it was just awful. It was like, you know, I, we did it so we could spend time together. And then we spent a lot of time together. It was a nightmare. And, um, and I was terrible in it. It's like the character I'm playing had a British accent. I couldn't do a British accent. I was terrible. But I don't, like, that is absolutely my worst experience. And I don't have any regrets about it. None at all. So that's the other piece of advice I get. It'd be like, anything you're afraid of, just run towards it. You know, yeah. there's a play that you're like, I couldn't do that. Because what is the cost of failing at summer stage? You know, and like, that's the thing that, it took me a long time to learn that failure is what learning looks like. And so go there and do something not well, because, you know, I actually carry the lessons of that awful production with me through the productions I directed when I was an undergraduate and everything else. And, you know, I'm happy I did it, you know? Um, and I also don't get into plays to save relationships that are ending. That's also a good <laughs> <laughs> When you performed, did you have any traditions or superstitions that just were just there? No, not at summer stage. Never. No. I mean, I, okay. later, later when I, when I was doing, uh, you know, cause I moved to New York in 98 and then I started doing stand up shortly afterwards and I did it for, you know, a little over 10 years there. Then I developed all sorts of crazy habits, but that's, you know, you don't want to get into that. But, okay. um, you know, like, yeah, certainly I had, because, you know, it's, you're learning how to write and on stage and bring things and do like, have you have all these, so I had sort of like a set of rituals before I'd go do new material, before I do old material, before I, you know, 
whatever. Um, but for like regular stage performing, no, in college, I think, you know, I took some acting classes. So were there, like those warmups, but I quickly learned they weren't really for me. And, you know, like okay. I, I, for me, it's more about getting character, get your costume on, get your makeup on, and then just have a moment before you go out to collect yourself. Okay. Yeah. Cause they say baseball players and performers yeah. are probably the most so superstitious people you know, that you're going to, you're going to come across. Well, and that's probably speaks to the fact that, like I said, I'm not really a born performer. You know, I loved it, but it's not really where I belong. Okay. All right. So when we had our little green room before uh, we started recording, I said that I started to listen to podcast way back when. Right. And my all time favorite is Mark Marin. Oh yeah. Yeah. And what I love about WTF. Him, <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, he was a stand-up forever, and he's probably a great historian for that medium because, you know, he did all the clubs wherever. Yeah. And he's still on the road for like 40 years. Yeah. I mean, that was his thing. And, and he's a, I think he's a humble guy. I know he could be a douchebag. I'm not sure. He, he was definitely much more of a douchebag when he was in New York. But, but I think, you know, life will beat that out of you. You know, yeah. Um, go on. I'm sorry, to interrupt. But I no, I just love that he does it in his garage. Yeah, and he doesn't have like a big fancy studio. Yeah, and uh, you know, he just kind of keeps it real. And uh, so I, I mean, so you've crossed his path, obviously. I mean, he used to come in and do when I was, you know, he was ahead of me. He's a generation ahead of me. But like, uh, he used to come in and do uh spots when I was there, and I remember not liking him that much. But then I saw him do an amazing spot. Where, you know, he basically, there's a young Christian woman in the front row and he just really like logically deconstructed her faith in, you know, with, that is very dangerous territory and could be very hateful and very mean and not very funny. But she was laughing the whole time <laughs> and, you know, it was so obviously it was masterfully done. And then I was like, oh, because I remember the reason I didn't really like him is I had seen him on like what would eventually become Comedy Central. There was like the Comedy Channel and there was Ha. There were two channels and then they, and he was on, I think, Comedy Channel and he was on like short attention span. They just kept giving him stuff and he wasn't very good. You know, right. because, and so then he would sound bitter and you could tell he felt like he, but then I saw him do stand up and I'm like, oh, he's a great comedian. He just doesn't know how to navigate the political side of it, you know, and that's, right. um, I will tell just, whenever he has an SNL alum on, yes. I can tell how bitter he is that he never got. Yeah, on that right. Show. Well, he's and then he he exuded that when he was in New York, like I should be bigger than I am, and you're like, get over yourself, like you know, <laughs> you're basically you know acting and stand up comedy. You're basically a plumber, you know. Like people have to not only think you're a good plumber, they have to want you in their house. That's you know you don't. If you're a plumber and you're and you like yell, you know, uh, curses at everybody and you're kind of a jerk to be around, your business isn't going to do well. And that's true for actors. And it's uh, certainly true for uh, comedians, you know. So yeah. um, I do have a just to, to that point about like that. You, you said something, a historian of comedy. One of the comedy clubs that I was passed in New York was called the, um, the comedy, uh, New York, the Boston Comedy Club ironically enough, and is right near the comedy cellar, much low, you know, comedy cellar is an A club. Boston's comedy is a C club. And there was a show on uh, HBO called uh, um, 
uh, crashing Pete Holmes and they, oh, yeah, and yeah. they, they recreated the interior of that club so meticulously. And I thought to myself, I think me and maybe 300 other comedians care what the interior of that place looks like, but they just nailed it so hard. The sad, desperate, awful, you know, sort of the opposite of the loving, welcoming place of summer stage, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about comedy in New York, the closest to summer stage would be like the Upright Citizens Brigade, where it feels okay. like young people who love theater supporting each other. Whereas, you know, stand up comedy is a is a killer's, you know, row of a bunch of criminals and, you know, people are, would stab each other in the back for another five minutes of material. Yeah, there was a great documentary. I remember I like locked into it uh, during COVID uh, when I was home every day. Mm-hmm. It was about the Mitzi Shores Club. Yeah, comedy story in L.A. Comedy, yeah, story. that was like maybe six different episodes, and yeah, yeah, and that that was a that was very well done. Yeah, it's a, I mean, so it was like a stories, who's who, you know, how she hated Jerry Seinfeld, and that is actually what sort of lit a fire under him. You know, um, mm-hmm. she actually said to him, "Like you're the kind of guy who needs someone to hate on him to give him a bunch of shit to motivate him." She goes, "I'm going to be that person." <laughs> he basically never gave him she never passed him he could never perform there and so you know he was like all right i'm gonna show you um so. yeah it's something i always wanted to do it's something i came close to doing a couple of times but i it was just my biggest phobia i mean i would sooner jump into a shark tank than try to get up on stage uh, with some of these audiences that I've witnessed. <laughs> but, yeah, well, you know, but th- once you have five, 10 minutes of stuff, then it's easier, right? And yes, you have to yeah. swim in a bunch of like lousy, putrid water before you get to the pretty pools. But yeah. it's not, you know, like I always, the thing I always say to friends of mine is like, did you learn how to ride a bike when you were a kid? Like, I remember being afraid when I was learning how to ride a bike in Drexel Hill, you know, on riding on Hillcrest, what if I'm the only kid who can't learn this? What if I don't have the skill for this? And of course, eventually I learned, right? But why do we treat riding a bicycle as something that every kid can learn, but telling a joke is not? Yeah. It's completely arbitrary. It's just a skill. I could teach any kid to write a joke and it did give a joke. And Mm -hmm. it is funny to me that like Jerry Sunfield does that great joke about how, you know, um, in the when you surveyed people about their fears, number one fear is public speaking. Number two fear is death, which means that <laughs> death is number two. So that means that if you're at a funeral, most people would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. And yeah. you know that's of course ludicrous. It's like just get over mm-hmm. it. You know? And I, by the way, I get afraid when I have to public speak all the time. But yeah, well, I had learned at one point that comedians it's it, it's a show you know they do a show every night and how i learned that really angered me i was a big rodney dangerfield fan oh yeah and i had tickets to see him at the tower theater and weeks leading up to the to the show i kept listening to his album no well, respect yeah yeah and then i get to the tower and he does the album yeah word for word yeah and even when he takes questions from the audience he had plants he's all of his past he has all of, the right, same of question yeah and yeah. i'm like huh <laughs> yeah, i, I mean know, i forget brings me 
the songs up. <laughs> yeah, well, it, I, that's the that's the magic. It was like uh, when Lady Gaga sang to uh, Bradley Cooper on the Oscars after A Star Is Born, and she gave that amazing performance, and everyone was like, "They're clearly sleeping together." And <laughs> and she like I saw her do an interview later, and she's like, "It's a love song." Yeah, it's my job to seem like I'm in love with him. That's yeah. that's the gig. And, you know, and it's comedian's job to make it seem like it's just off the top of their head. I forget, you know, Amy and I went and we went to the comedy cellar. We were in New York last year. We saw a comedian I'd never seen before there. And we go and watch him online. And we watched the same five minutes he did. He had done been doing for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Jerry Seinfeld had the same hour. Ray Romano famously had 45 minutes. Wow. That's all he had. You know, so, yeah. but there is like the counter argument to that is, and I think it was unfortunately related to, I think Cosby was the one who said this, but, but, uh, some comedian was giving Chris Rock advice and he's like, look, if you go and if you go on tour and you do the stuff they've seen on TV, they'll love it. They'll never come see you again. But if you do five minutes from the stuff that's been out there and then you do all new stuff. They'll come see you every time you come to town. You'll build a following. And I think, you know, a uh, comedian like Louis C.K., uh, you know, he very much embodied that, right? His whole shtick was he would, um, and I, I, you know, I'm, what happened to him, he was totally self-inflicted and not so much about what happened, but like what he did about what happened was the problem in my view. But mm -hmm. as a, but you can't argue with his, with his work at work ethic but how he writes jokes, which was he'd finish his hour, he'd publish his hour, and then he'd go to work on his next hour. And what he would do is he'd take his closing bit, which is your best joke, and he'd start with it. And then he'd write an hour after it so that, it, you know, okay, now I'm starting from the top of Mount Everest. I got to go higher. I got to go higher. Mm -hmm. Which again, when I think back to that, not to bring everything back to summer stage and, you know, Gary Lennon telling us our play sucks, but you know, if you can't look critically at what you're doing and say, this is bad, this isn't as good as it should be, I can do better, I'm going to show up tomorrow and be better, then what's the point? And I like, I, I don't, that is not just like a platitude that I throw out there. That is literally something I've said three times this week at Tinder with to colleagues. You know, I'm like, hey, this thing we've been doing for six months, we're not better at it than we were before. That's a problem. It's not, I don't want us to be perfect. I just want us to be better tomorrow than we are today. And that to me is like, as I'm talking out loud to you, that's, I think, something I really picked up in rehearsals at summer stage, right? Mm -hmm. And find that it sucks when on the reading, right? There's great moments, but there's par whole parts you don't understand. But then you start to get it on its feet and you start to explore stuff and you work on the stuff right. that you don't understand. And, you know, polish the stuff you do understand and, you know, cut the stuff. Yeah, and then the, never the audience helps you learn what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, 100%. Although, you know, in summer stage, you only get four nights to figure that out in front of an audience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as I recall, right? There's always a, you know, because like by the time you finish, by the time the show closes, you're starting to figure it out. What What's with Tinder? Uh, I mean, I, I know what it is. I'm not a client. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, uh, you know, I... I work in, so I've always, you know, I started in the theater and computer science were always my things. I actually wanted to go to Carnegie Mellon and, uh, um, 
you know, I took a year off from college because my mother was sick and uh, before going to college. And I went out to Carnegie Mellon because they had a great theater program, a great computer science program. And this guy goes, yeah, we have the best ones. You know, you can audition and apply. So I audition and I apply, I apply to the computer science program. I get into both. I get a scholarship. And I go back and the guy goes, well, actually, I didn't think you'd get into both programs. I'm not sure you can do it. And the computer science guy was like, yeah, there'll no way that that because I don't know how much you know about their theater department, especially back in the eighties, but it was like, they had this production requirement where everyone had to basically build sets till two in the morning, you know? So they were like, there's no way you can study anything else. Right. So, so I ended up at Princeton, which, you know, was not my first choice. It was close to home. Um, and I studied computer science and theater there, but not in the way I could have at Carnegie Mellon. Um, so my life was always ping ponging back and forth, you know, doing tech during the day, doing comedy at night. And, you know, I directed productions and all this sort of stuff. I started doing, I made some films, but ultimately I realized like, I really like just making things. And uh, after I closed a company that I had that made 360 degree cameras, I was like, I just want to be an engineer for someone. I've, I've engineers have worked for me for 15 years. I never got a chance to be an engineer. So I got to code for someone for around a year. And then I started managing and I got poached by one of my old engineers who was going to Tinder. He said, Hey, you should come here. And so I've been there four years. That was the fastest way I could get through my whole adult career. And, uh, <laughs> so I've been there like four years and I'm the director of engineering for the core team at Tinder. So like the core experience at Tinder is my team is responsible for, but we get to do really cool things. Like last year we did this choose your own adventure, um, experience where, if you log into Tinder on a Saturday night, it's a murder mystery, kind of like Glass Onion. You know, it's you swipe right to make the characters do one thing or left or swipe left to make them do something else. And then you choose, you know, OK, I think this person is suspect or this person is suspect. And um, so I like, you know, it's pretty great to get paid to do things like that. And I work mm -hmm. with really fun, smart, uh, talented people. And it's surprising about Tinder is that it's small. Um, you know, it's like 400 people. So how many people are in summer stage in the summer? Oh, it's maybe 900 to a thousand. Right. I mean, right. They I go think, down to like second grade now. Right. So when I was there, I think it was like 400, 500 or something like it was smaller than it is now. Right. Oh yeah. Um, that's, I, I often think like, boy, that's the perfect size for me, you know, a big enough community that there's enough. People, Interesting. Right. But, but small enough, I mean, you know, the amazing thing about Tinder is, we're, you know, we're 600 people and change, 400 engineers and change, but, you, you know, I can go anywhere in the world and people are using it, you know, like, so it's pretty, I like it because there's nowhere to hide creatively, right? If I don't add value, I got to go, but also I can have huge impact. Um, so... Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it's been great. I love it there. So what's the business model? Do they sell ads? I mean, how no, they no, no, we, we do, but it's not, no, it's freemium. So, you know, it's like Google and not like Google, but like, uh, unlike Facebook and Google, we give it away for free, but then, you know, if you want to have more swipes, if you want to have special features, then you can pay a little extra. So we have like Tinder, silver, Tinder, gold, you can buy, you know, extra swipes and stuff. And so... <laughs> But this is a dating app. It's a dating app. But, you know, everyone needs to date. So, you know, like. Okay. What, what, what I think Tinder does is it takes every city and turns it into New York. Right. In New oh. York, you can wander around and like there's every. So what, what Tinder does is it says, what's everyone who might have been in every bar within 100 miles of you who's interested in 
you know, going on a date who like is complimentary to your interests, who are they? And boom, they're all there. So it like time shifts everything and makes every place feel. And you know what I love about it because, you know, people say, Oh, Tinder. Oh, you work for Tinder. Isn't that a dating app? I'm like, it's an app that helps people meet and get off the internet. You know, like we're not Facebook. We're not TikTok. We're not Instagram. We're not trying to addict people to swiping forever and ever. We actually are trying to get people to meet each other and leave the internet and go have in real life experiences. So um, I love that because yeah. I, I get to I'm, I'm glad you schooled me. No, it's fine. Like people, a lot of, one of my friends from Upper Darby was like, oh, you work for Grindr. I'm like, no, I work for <laughs> Tinder. You know, not there's anything wrong with Grindr, but like Grindr really is a hookup app. And, you know, for me, Tinder is people think it's a hookup app, but it's because what we did was, before Tinder, and this is before me, I didn't, I can't take credit for this, but before Tinder, um, if, you, if you wanted to go online dating, it was usually a website, people would spend all this time filling out stuff. And then men would just send women messages that they didn't want to receive, right? So women spent all their time saying, no, 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 no. And what Tinder invented was, no, 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 I swipe right or left on you, you swipe right or left on me. We can only talk to each other if we both swiped right on each other. So that mutual buy-in is like, a billion dollar idea. That's the reason Tinder mm-hmm. basically took over the whole space. And um, and the downside of it is that like people think it sort of trivializes it, gamifies it. But you know, the first woman I fell in love with happened at Pizza Hut near you know uh, the Pizza Hut right near Summer Stage. You know, right down the street on Barclay Square Barclay Shopping Square. Center. Yep. Right. And like, there was nothing rational about it. There was nothing reasoned about it. It wasn't a checklist. It wasn't a rational. It was just like, oh, and so we sort of like, try to try to put that on the internet as close as we can, and then give people tools to make meaningful matches and then and then connect with each other. Um, Mm -hmm. And given the fact that my partner and I met on an app, not Tinder, but another app. um, You know, to me, it's just like, it's I'm not any more sensitive about it than if I had said I met someone in the theater, I met someone in a bar, or I met someone in a comedy. Mm-hmm. Like it's just it's just a venue in which you meet people. Well, I'm glad I found that out, and I'm also glad I, I will never have to use it. <laughs> hey, don't never say never. I, I, uh... <laughs> <laughs> so one of my favorite episodes, I'll call it an episode. Of uh, Jeff Glass on Facebook oh, no. was you're in this you're in this yacht <laughs> and you're like going around the world. Now it kind of gave the impression that either you had a really song a really long selfie stick, or you weren't the only one on that trip. Uh, would you know where I was? I was on a, was I was heading down to San Diego. Is that one where I out to Catalina? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That's and, just usually those are just me. So. They're wide angle lenses and, and, you know, it's just my phone and, uh, and I do it. It's funny, you know, I know Facebook is like all the young people are off of Facebook now and it's really just a place for people with gray hair to talk about their kids right. and their cousins, which I love. It's even better. Right. Um, well, you know, I'm an idiot. I, I, when we grew up, I grew up sailing on the Chesapeake Bay with my dad and he's just sort of like, there was a point. When my dad was living on his boat on the Chesapeake, I was living on my boat in San Francisco. My sister, Jennifer, was living on a boat in London, like just a six month period. But we were all living on boats. So like, you know, we have that. My dad sort of planted that seed in our brains. So I've owned three boats, one in San Francisco, one in New York, one here. And 
This one I bought because I was closing my company down and I knew that it would take me a while to transition. I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to go sailing with people. And, you know, uh, and so I did a lot of sailing and I sort of fell in love with uh, ocean sailing here, which is, you know, very different and also single handing. So um, I, most of the time I'm on the boat, I have one other person with me, but I, 99% of those pictures that I take are, are mine. Yeah. They're just me with a wide angle lens. And like when I do bring someone, it's either like, you know, a good friend. I have like a small group of people who um, sail with me or like uh, there's a couple, you know, that likes to sail and, you know, I'll bring them and, you know, they, they crew for me. So, uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, between one and two other people most times, although I sailed all the way down to San Diego and back by myself. Well, I enjoyed it very much. <laughs> well, you're welcome anytime. Although I'm probably going to sell the boat this year. It's uh, okay. You know, I bought a house now, and now I spend all my time at the house rather than at the boat. And it's, it's less, uh, you know, I, I, th- I throw a fewer hundred dollar bills into the ocean these days. Oh, okay. Now I don't know where I heard this. It, it, like most rumors, it could be false. I can't wait. But Somehow I had this idea that you made your fortune with the iPhone. Well, I didn't make it my, I didn't make a fortune. Um, but the thing that everyone knows me about, and I, I don't have this here for any reason others just sitting in this room, but I had this product called dot that snapped on the iPhone and it was, you know, just this little attachment thingy that snapped on the iPhone. I just have a couple of them sitting in this, in my green room because they're green. And, uh, <laughs> That was a company I launched uh, to um, out of work I did for the Gates Foundation at this other company I did, and I just had built these three sixty degree cameras, and so I, you know, launched that company, and then you know, within a year and a half of launching it, we're in every Apple store in the world, which is pretty great. It didn't sell as well as we thought it would, and then um, uh, Oculus Rift was bought by Facebook which at the time I thought was fantastic because, you know, it was, it was vindicating, validating this whole 360 degree media world that I was helping to create. But then what happened was uh, all the professional work I was doing and being paid for, suddenly there was all this dumb money in the space. And so rather than getting paid to go to Coachella and shoot 360 video, I, you know, get a call from, oh, sorry, someone's going to pay us a million dollars for the rights to to shoot the footage and give it to us. Right. And so ultimately I just had to shut that company down and, uh, um, which was really heartbreaking, you know, and it wasn't, so I, I did not make my money from that. And, uh, I made my money from, uh, you know, just grinding away at much less sexy companies like Teachscape and then, you know, uh, working for companies like Appetize and Tinder. Um, and uh, and that sailboat, by the way, is forty years old, and you know <laughs> it's not a ten million dollar boat. You know, it's like I love boats of that era because they didn't really understand how to build with fiberglass in the seventies, and so they built mm. wooden boats with fiberglass. And they were also selling to men. It was before they realized, hey, if we sell to couples, we can charge four times as much. So, like, there's if you just start looking at boats from like 1975 to 1980, you'll see they've completely changed. They go looking from pirate ships to looking like condos. And I like the pirate ship boats, I really do. Um, and it helps when you like something that other people don't like as much anymore. Yeah, because you can just take it off their hands, you know. So, um, don't please don't think those. Uh, 
those pictures of me sailing around on my 40 year old boat are, are meant to seem uh, fancy because they really aren't. You know, it's an old boat that no one cares about that I have maintained myself. Okay. Yeah, I know. I I recently got interested in old manual typewriters. Oh yeah, right. And people think I'm doing them a favor when I say, "Yeah, I'll give you a couple bucks for that." Yeah. And then it, it takes me, you know, either six weeks to six months to take them apart and clean them and get them going. But there's just so much satisfaction. There's something about first off the the I I. I it, just appreciating engineering outside the context of the business that motivated it, right? Like there's no financial value in those mechanical typewriters anymore, but there's still so much ingenuity in them. They're just so beautiful, right? They solved so many problems and there's lots of things in them that actually you couldn't get made today because the metalworking skills just literally don't exist on the planet anymore. And so, Mm -hmm. um, I love that. So like, you know, I, I, I regularly, like I have an old TI 99, which is like the first computer I had. And, you know, I'll do nerdy things like upgrade it to work with a modern monitor. And Oh, is that the one you, you, you would wire into the, your television set? Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I, I, I had one as well. Yeah. Did you, with the, did you have a speed synthesizer that slid on the side? You know? Yeah. So now, I remember you would record onto cassette. an audio cassette. Yeah, audio cassette tapes. Yeah, I had that too because yeah. I couldn't afford because disk drives were for rich people. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, now I have one of those and it has a little th- sidecar that lets it talk to the internet. I can actually like write programs on my modern computer and send them to the old TI-99 just to remind myself of, again, what I was saying in the beginning about how, you know, how you lose that magic of Christmas, but I can still get into that mood with, uh, with uh, my summer stage friends. Mm-hmm. The the sense of possibility and wonder of that first computer. I mean, I still remember my mother and I taking it home from the Bazaar of All Nations and uh, at a computer store where I ended up working when I, and when I was a teenager. But, you know, just the idea I could tell it to do something and it would do it and writing games for it and like sitting with my friends and developing this game called the Final Battle for, for it. Like to me, that was such a f- f- fertile time creatively. You know, doing plays at summer stage and learning, you know, like calculus at school and programming a computer at night. Like it just felt like the world was this, you know, universe of unlimited possibilities. And, the, you know, the only thing that stressed me out at that period was, well, what am I going to choose? You know, and it took me a long time to realize that that's sort of a uniquely American thing that like what you do professionally is what you are. And it took me a long time to realize, oh no, actually I'm into what I'm into. And then I also need to, you know, eat and, you know, have a roof over my head. And so how do I find a balance between those things? I don't necessarily have to do the thing that everyone, oh, Jeff's a computer guy. Oh, Jeff's in the theater. Oh, Jeff does comedy. Um, And in fact, when I was, when I was doing comedy full-time at night, but I had a you know, I was a vice president at this company, Teachscape. I remember one of these other executives said to me, so yeah, I mean, you do, this is like your day job, like comedy is your real thing, right? And I said, yeah, you know, guilty as charged, right? Like, this is your real thing. Your kids are a hobby. And he goes like, what? And I'm like, my comedy takes much less time than your kids. You know, I can do both. I can care about this and I can care about that. And so um, I love that, uh, 
you know, that sort of that freedom to go, okay, I'm going to get that a little bit of that here, a little bit of that there. And I feel like summer stage again was an early prototype for that for me in my life. You know, like, wow, it's nice to be on stage. It's also nice to hang out. It's nice to build things in the wood shop. It's nice to know how the lighting system works. Right. And the different and make quilts and make quilts. Yes, of course. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks, Terry, for that. (laughs) Now I'm going to get, and now I'm going to hear word back from Terry. He's like, wait, wait, what? I didn't thank you enough. You know, (laughs) <laughs> well, you are certainly a wise man. Now I just, you know, I, I, I read a lot of Wikipedia. Well, I'm going to ask you the wise man question. Oh, now. boy. You know, our summer stage pillars, brave and strong and true. It's the name of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Which one is most important to you? Being brave, being strong, or being true? Uh, that's a great question. I, I would, I would say true, um, for two reasons. One, because, uh, you know, my best friend, uh, when I got married, uh, described me as like a truth seeker. And he's like, that's a lonely life. And, you know, and it's a, and it's a life of compulsion. Um, and so, and I really, that it, it, meant a lot to me when he said that. And it sort of, sort of like a, you know, but I also know that like, it's easy to not be truthful. And in my life, you know, I've been caught in a lie here and there. I've been, I have, uh, I have pretended to be something I'm not, I have, you know, not, not risen to the occasion. And so to me, like truth, truth, trumps strength, because to be true requires strength, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's the hardest thing to just say, I'm not going to do that or you're wrong, or that's not good enough, or I'm incapable of that, or I'm unwilling of that, or I'm willing to do it, but it'll damage our friendship. Like all those things are hard. And so I would say of all of them, yeah, I, you know, like to, to, because to be truthful is to be brave and to be strong. It's a wonderful answer. How will you continue to fill the world with love? This is a question I've been actually actively asking myself. You know, I, as a young man, I just presumed I would have a family and I didn't, you know, I just, uh, uh, my, my wife was unable to have children. Then when my marriage ended, I wasn't in a position to even think about having a family. And then suddenly I found myself in my fifties, you know, and I was literally having the conversation with my partner saying, I was like, I don't know how to say this in a way that doesn't sound a little ridiculous, but like, I just feel like I, I have all this love I want to put out there. And, you know, a lot of it is like my, my, this will sound again, ridiculous, but I'm just being as honest as I can. My dog of 17 years passed away this year. Oh, and you realize how much love you pour into these relationships, you know? And so, which I love, and I don't like nothing but great memories and, you know, super, but of course now I'm like, where do I want to put that love now? Where can have the most, uh, where can do the most good? And the truth is, I don't know, but I'm literally like, that's the thing I lie around thinking about. One of the things I've been trying to do is put more effort into my friendships and, uh, you know, take the time to visit people when I've, you know, I do have that American, oh, I probably shouldn't take time off. Oh, I took time off last. Oh, I already took enough time for this. And now I'm, I'm trying to, uh, be a little more like, oh, I'm going to the East Coast to see my father. I'm going to go early and go to Philadelphia and see my friends in Philadelphia who I don't see often enough. Because I also, 
recognize, you know, um, I'm running out of time to fill the world with love, right? When you're young, you can go, oh, I'm going to do that eventually. I've got a bunch of other things I'm going to do this. But now you start, you start seeing the curvature. You start seeing the end of the horizon. You go, okay, well, if I'm going to do it, I better do it. Um, and so, you know, I wish I had a better immediate answer, but I will tell you it's been something I've been thinking a lot about. Mm-hmm. Well, now that everyone is weeping, I will, uh, <laughs> I will throw in my summer stage joke about uh, to fill the world with love. You know, we go through the sunrise of my life, the noontime of my life, and then the evening of my life. Well, I refuse to believe that I've reached the evening of my life, but I'm, I'm not naive to think that I'm still in the noontime of my life. So I like to picture myself in the happy hour of my life. I like that. I like that a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm late to that too. Like my partner, the guy who said the nice thing about me, was also saying years ago, oh, you know, I see the curve. I, I'm starting to see the end. And I was like, what are you talking? Like, I'm just living my life, you know? But, but then you sort of like, maybe it's because I spend so much time around young people now. So I, I feel how they see me, you know? Like I feel, A, that the world has changed. You know, I was a pretty progressive guy when I was young and now like the world is caught up with my point of view. And so, and in fact, young people will say things. I'm like, I'm sorry, what, 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 what is the phrase? What is the point of view that's commonly accepted? And like, you know, I'm getting older and not that I disapprove, but you know, when that computer that hooked into the TV, I remember turning to my grandmother and saying, Nana, do you know what this computer is? She goes, ah, not really, no. But, but you like them, right? <laughs> That's good. And, you know, I'm like, okay, so I'm heading into that territory. And so then the right. question becomes like, all right, and here at happy hour, you know, who do I buy drinks? <laughs> right, my final question connects back to summer stage. And that is, who are your four faces on the Mount Rushmore of summer stage? Uh, Ann Pinto, just because of her insane voice um you know her singing and the young nyc that throwing down the the um the luggage the luggage yeah and i remember when tina fey came back and and gave her thing and when she did the fundraiser uh like i don't know 10 years ago or something and she's she brought up Anne, and i remember pulling Anne aside and saying you know, she's like one of the comedic voices of our generation. Like, that's not an exaggeration. This one won the, won the Mark Twain Prize. Mm-hmm. And she gets on stage here, and the first person she mentions is you. Like, understand what a world force of talent you are. Just because you didn't decide to do it professionally doesn't matter. When Tina Fey thinks about great singers, she thinks of you. So that's the first one that's up there. Um, Harry, obviously, you know, how do you do it without Harry? Um, you know, I, I'm going to have to go with Gary Lennon for me. He's that, (laughs) he's that, you know, cantankerous Jefferson character who's, you know, constantly disagreeing, but, you know, probably has some of the best ideas. Um, and, uh, um, That's a tough one. The fourth one, I might have to, you know, again, be a little provincial and go with Colleen Corbett. Uh, 
because Gary and Colleen are always standing next to each other whenever I see them. Like literally mm-hmm. when I left 25 years ago, 30 years ago, I think they were like hanging out talking. And then when we went back to the 40th, like they were talking and I made them laugh. So I think, I think those would be my four. Wonderful. I got to tell you, Jeff, I had an amazing time just listening to you. you you truly are a man of wisdom. Uh, I'm sure you're usually the smartest guy in the room. You certainly were tonight <laughs> Not true. with your polysyllabic I'm, words. I'm the loudest guy in the room and the guy who talks, <laughs> the most, but rarely the smartest guy in the room. And, uh, and I, Bob, I just want to say it's a pleasure to be here. I love that you're doing this. I think it's really important. Um, you know, the other side of me listens to an Atari podcast where they interview all these aging programmers who built the games that I loved as a youth. <laughs> and you know, and I find myself thinking, I'm glad you're doing this because, you know, this is an important time capsule for, you know, like, again, for the same reason that that episode of crashing taking place in the Boston Comedy Club is so important to me. This is mm-hmm. important to me. And the fact that I haven't listened to it is not because I, I don't value it. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story, which is when I was a very young kid, my mother gave me a book called Frog and Toad, Our Friends. And I loved it so much. I loved the, I loved the message of kindness and of friendship. I loved the comedy about it. I loved the art style about it. And it only has like five stories. And so I never read the fifth story. Because I always wanted to have another Frog and Toad story out there. And in fact, there was another book called Frog and Toad Together. And I didn't want it because I thought, <laughs> what if it's not as good as the first book? What if it taints the first book, which is perfect? I have the first book and I have. And so that's why I haven't listened to the podcast, because I love the idea that when I go to take a vacation or if I go to sail across the Pacific Ocean, I could download all the podcasts and listen to all my summer stage friends. And I want to thank you for creating that out of nothing. You know, like that's a that's a real service you're giving. And, you know, despite the fact you made the bad decision to include me in it, I still think it's a wonderful (laughs) thing. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I, I really do. And uh, I'm glad you were available, uh, that we could do this. It was uh, a good choice for me to ask you. Well, so, I'm, I'm, I, I appreciate it. And thank you so much for, for making it possible. All right. And thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Glass. Bob. Our music is composed and performed by Neil McGettigan. Please follow Brave and Strong and True on Apple Podcasts. While you're there, please rate the show and leave a comment. If you want to be a guest on Brave and Strong and True, please contact me at braveandstrongandtrue at gmail.com. You must have a desktop or laptop computer running the latest version of the Google Chrome browser. It helps if you have an external microphone and headphones, but Apple earbuds work too. However, Bluetooth ones are not 100% reliable, so see if you can borrow wired ones.